3: Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: In 2004, 15 years after Michael Frankie's murder, an astounding document, one that could have aided greatly in Frank Gable's defense, was discovered. It was a sworn statement signed and witnessed on December 11, 1990, five months before Gable's trial. But it was never presented in his defense or in his subsequent appeal. In fact, it was buried in a forgotten box of evidence until it was unearthed by Kevin Frankie.
5: The Linda Parker interview was extremely telling and very, 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 very disturbing. When I read that, I could not believe that this was in existence at the time that Frank was tried. But it wasn't presented to the courts. She was never called. I, I was beyond belief.
4: Linda Parker was a former secretary and girlfriend of Scott McAllister. That's the former Oregon Assistant Attorney General, who some felt really ran the state's Department of Corrections before Michael Frankie got there. We have a copy of that 1990 sworn statement, and it reveals more than a few very concerning skeletons in Scott McAllister's closet. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco and this is Murder in Oregon. Jim Redden is a reporter for the Portland Tribune and one of Oregon's most seasoned journalists. Nice to
2: meet you in person. Nice to meet you.
4: In person, he has a jovial disposition that's balanced with a direct quizzical stare that peers out from behind dark wire-rimmed glasses. Like Stanford, Steve Jackson and Eric Mason, he's been covering the Frankie murder for three decades. Here's his take on Scott McAllister.
6: Well, Scott McAllister was the longtime Department of Justice attorney for the Corrections Division. And he had been there, uh, assigned to them, for quite a while. And it it had been practice in uh, the Department of Justice to rotate attorneys because you don't want them getting too close to their agencies. They need to have that arm's length, objective perspective. But he stayed a long time He seemed to—I guess he liked the work, and it's possible that other attorneys just didn't want to do it because you're dealing with criminals all the time.
4: Redden, like the other journalists and colleagues of Frankie we've interviewed, was aware of apparent issues with Scott McAllister.
6: He and Michael Frankie got into some huge argument uh, shortly after uh, Frankie arrived and shortly before he was uh, murdered— McAllister got reassigned and quit, uh, left uh, the Department of Justice and moved to Utah.
4: That's where McAllister would meet a woman named Linda Parker. She worked in adjoining offices to McAllister when she was hired by the Attorney General's office in Utah. It wasn't long before she attracted McAllister's eye and unwanted interference in her career we were able to contact Parker, who agreed to speak with us under the condition we not reveal her current name or state where she resides. To this day, she remains deeply afraid of Scott McAllister.
7: I was a paralegal for the attorney general's office. And we were housed at the Department of Corrections right outside Scott's office he was the inspector general and worked for the department of corrections so my first impression was he was arrogant and he was always getting me to do things for the department of corrections as opposed to the ag's office and then eventually he had me transferred from the ag's office to the inspector general's office.
4: Without her knowledge or consent. Linda was then 36 and struggling through a difficult divorce. McAllister quickly attempted to take advantage of her situation.
7: He kept asking me out. Not necessarily on a date. He was always, come for dinner or come and make dinner or, you know, stuff like that. I was in a really rough place at the time, going through a divorce. I had a young daughter, hadn't worked since we had adopted my daughter, so it was my first job back into the working field, and I had a very low opinion of myself. I didn't think anybody would be interested in a divorced single mom. So in that sense, it was an ego boost for me.
4: And initially, she didn't see McAllister as a manipulative opportunist. And the two dated for about two months in the summer of 1989.
7: At the time, for lack of a better explanation, I wasn't mature enough to see what was actually going on.
4: But his true colors soon became apparent and were even on display.
7: Scott had made a sign in Utah for his office door and it said, the Iceman, Prince of Darkness. And he was very proud of the nickname that he had assigned to himself. I don't believe that he just came up with that when he moved to Utah. That had to have been his attitude in Oregon and wherever else before Oregon.
4: While Parker knew McAllister had recently moved to Utah from Oregon, He was never clear as to why.
7: He just said that he was offered a job from the executive, whatever, of the Department of Corrections, and that it was time for him to move.
4: And once he was in Utah, McAllister transferred a loyal Oregon work buddy to work with him in Utah corrections, and they socialized outside of work.
7: There were a group of people over at Scott's house, and he had brought another gentleman over to be the warden at a prison. Al was the name. He was a police officer in Oregon. And when Scott brought him down to Utah, he gave them the position of director of civil litigation for the inspector general's office. So... I don't know how the hierarchies are in the police field, but that's a pretty damn good promotion.
4: It was during one of their gatherings that Linda Parker first heard talk of the Frankie murder.
7: They were talking about how they couldn't believe it was still in the news. There was a lot of laughing, a lot of joking about it. The fact that he was such a lowlife, They were trying to pin something on Scott and his crew. Scott had said that he may have to go back up to Oregon to take care of some business. And then it was a little bit more intense.
4: What were your impressions about how McAllister felt about Michael Frankie?
7: It was a burden off of his back. That Michael was dead? Yes.
4: At some point, McAllister complained about having to take a polygraph test.
7: He said all he needed to do was take Valium or some sort of downer, and that he could control his pulse and beat any polygraph that was ever presented to him. He kept a variety of pills in his office. He was always taking something. After the polygraph, Scott said that he wouldn't have needed it. He could have snowed the guy without it. And then I had asked him if he had anything to worry about, and he said no. There had been over 140 incidents of violations and misconduct during his 17 years in Oregon, and not one had ever been pinned on him. So he knew the ropes. He knew what to do. He had made the comment several different times that he was well protected, that nothing was tied to him.
4: Here are Kevin and Pat Frankie discussing that polygraph.
7: The district
5: attorney, Dale Penn, had uh, arranged to have a polygraph team, quote unquote, and I believe it was, it was either local police or state police in Utah, uh, I, I, was I thought they did it here. No, no, they did it there at his office. They sent up a list of questions to ask him, and that was it. They didn't give him any background on the case, any background on the individual. Uh, just here are the questions to ask him and follow the protocol to ask him these questions and send us the results. And according to Linda Parker, he took a sedative to dull his responses cut off the, the highs and, and low yeah. peaks of his heart rate prior to the polygraph. And he was expecting a, a team that. from Oregon to come up and really grill him, and it didn't show up. In fact, it was just the local Utah authorities with a list of the three or five questions, I think. And he was bragging about how easy it was. He said he could have passed it without the medication. what he told Parker.
4: But while McAllister may have been cavalier about the polygraph, or being linked to wrongdoings, he seemed very interested in Frank Gable's trial.
7: He was getting updates on the trial, what was going on, what the news clippings had to say. And later it all made sense because he had a girlfriend in Oregon who was working with him at the time. Her name was Grace. And she would come down to visit him. And on one of those visits, she brought him down some boxes of stuff. And in the beginning, I didn't know what was in the boxes. I know that they had a lot of conversations and that was his go-to person for information.
4: Like others loyal to McAllister, Grace would leave Oregon for Utah.
7: At the time, I thought it was odd that he had brought so many people and put them in high-up positions within the Department of Corrections. And then when things started evolving and I started getting manipulated even more, it was like all of these people were his minions. I mean, if Scott told him to jump, they would bow down and ask where and how high. It was almost as if though they didn't have a mind of their own.
4: At the same time, McAllister was increasingly pressuring Linda into embracing an unusual relationship arrangement and the concept of group sex.
7: Well, he had started making suggestions about starting a corporation and what this corporation was is he wanted multiple women. So he would be the head of the corporation. And everybody would live under one roof. And it at first it was and later confirmed what he was after was more like a cult. So you would pay in proportionately to this corporation and that would be for household expenses so he wanted you know a threesome or foursome whatever it was at first i thought it was a real joke and i completely turned him off well then a couple days later i go to work and i get this um, bouquet of flowers on my desk And the card said, here's to the corporation. It'll be a beautiful corporation, nice life. And that's when I started getting real nervous because also at that time, he had moved Grace down from Oregon to become his right-hand person.
4: And to entice Linda into this unconventional lifestyle, he implored her to use drugs and he gave her a box of tapes to watch, pornographic tapes.
7: He said that he wanted me to get comfortable with the idea and that after I watched him, I would know that there was nothing wrong with that type of activity. So he left my apartment and I put the box in the closet, never touched it again, until I quit
8: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
2: Jean. Eugene Fodor! Jean, we'll boot it!
8: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you
2: write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man uh, Marie is a wiser woman.
3: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
9: Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered.
1: (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner?
9: Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
10: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: And it's at this point in late July of 1989 that Linda Parker overheard a conversation at Scott McAllister's home. It happened during a dinner gathering that was sort of a welcome party for Grace's move to Utah.
7: Scott was talking to Grace and Harold. He said, um, yeah, it was really stupid about Frankie's murder because it was supposed to look like a suicide, but was really, pardon my language, fucked up. And Harold at the time, looked at Scott and Scott had said um, something to the effect, everybody that knew him knew that he, meaning Frankie, never used the door he was found laying in front of. And so Harold and Scott went on and was further conversing about it. And Harold said that it was no real loss because nobody liked Frankie anyway. And now that Frankie was out of the picture, Harold could use the Oregon Department of Corrections again as a reference because nobody would be there to soil his name. Scott just kept saying the job was really effed up. They couldn't get anything right if they tried. It was supposed to look like a suicide, and they botched it.
4: And that's exactly what Linda Parker conveyed in her sworn statement, signed in December of 1990, five months before Frank Gable's trial even began. But there's more. As Linda tried to distance herself, increasingly uncomfortable with McAllister, his cohorts,
7: and his sexual demands. When I completely made it absolutely 100% clear that that was not going to happen with me anyway he transferred me from the executive offices to the prison at the point of the mountain in their mail group. my world shattered once i started pulling away and didn't want anything to do with whatever Scott wanted, or how he was manipulating the others. That's when I started having problems in the mailroom at the prison. And shortly after that, I left the department completely, and I still hadn't had my final paycheck. And all of this is taken place in the beginning of 90.
4: And McAllister's retaliation against Linda for rejecting him didn't end in the workplace.
7: He contacted my ex-husband and told him that he would work with him to have me claimed an unfit parent to take my child away from me. And in fact, when we had a custody hearing in court, he showed up in court to back my ex-husband. That's the vindictive nature of this man.
4: Finally, she'd had enough and fought back by suing Scott McAllister for sexual harassment.
7: When I brought the lawsuit against Scott and he was served with papers, when the judges said that we could proceed with trial, the next morning I went to get into my car and all four tires were slashed. A few days later, there was an envelope that was delivered to my house, and it told me to drop the suit or you're dead. A few days after that, my apartment was broken into. It was in the news because of Scott's position, but he would have been the only person that knew where I lived that could have told somebody to intimidate me. And if he can do something like that to a woman that doesn't have any power, imagine what he could do with his connections, both with inmates and inside the prison system. Imagine what he could do to people that wronged him.
4: But the attempts to intimidate Parker into stopping her suit didn't work.
7: The judge had found that there was more than enough evidence to back my allegations. And he said that he was setting it over for trial. And that afternoon, my attorney got a call from risk management saying that they wanted to settle.
4: She would receive $95,000 from the state in an out-of-court settlement for the sexual harassment suit she filed against McAllister and the Department of Corrections, an expensive taxpayer tab for McAllister's indiscretions. But it was validation for Parker.
7: That proved to me that I was not imagining all of this, that I wasn't going crazy.
4: And remember that box of pornographic tapes that Scott McAllister gave to Linda? She still had them.
7: The U.S. attorney found out through the Department of Labor that I had this box of information. So they asked me to bring it down. So I took it down to them. And that's when I found out what all was in the box. It was children, women with women, women with men. It was like a for lack of a better word, orgy-type environment.
4: And those tapes originated from a shocking source.
7: The evidence for other cases in Oregon that should have never left the state.
4: Scott McAllister had been amassing child pornography seized as evidence in Oregon cases, and he had transported it across state lines.
7: After I gave him my box, they um, did a search warrant on his apartment, and they found more of the same stuff.
4: Kevin Frankie says some of those tapes even still had evidence tags on them.
5: Uh, Because they were taken from child pornography cases. The FBI agent that I talked to told me that he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of porno tapes in a specially built case in a closet in his home.
4: Linda Parker would serve as a witness in the child pornography case against McAllister. Ultimately, he'd plead guilty to reduce charges. While he lost his ability to practice in Utah, McAllister basically received a slap on the wrist for felony possession of child pornography, serving just seven days in jail during October of
7: 1990. He was untouchable. And I was so disappointed, so extremely disappointed. I think he lost his license for a few years, but then when he moved out of state, he was able to get it back again. And it's like, he uses the law, manipulates the law, just like he uses human beings and manipulates human beings.
4: Scott McAllister is still a practicing lawyer today. We've reached out to him multiple times, and he's ignored our request for a statement or interview. We're grateful to Linda Parker for the courage it took to share her story.
7: I mean, I'm sitting here 30 years later just thinking about him, and I'm sitting here shaking. And I've tried so hard to take that control away from him. And he relishes in the misery that he brings to people. He just absolutely relishes in it.
4: Many believe Scott McAllister has never been properly investigated in the murder of Michael Frankie. Here's Steve Jackson, the reporter who covered the Frankie case as it unfolded for the Statesman Journal.
8: You know, if you looked at my investigation, um, it's sort of like a tree. And there's a, you know, the trunk of the tree and that's this is the stuff we know. Um, and then there are branches from it. And Scott McAllister was uh, on one of the branches, and that the branch was that if there was corruption in the prison system, if there was something that Michael Frankie was about to expose, if he had some names and that sort of stuff, uh, that branch held, you know, Scott McAllister, it held Neil Goldschmidt, it held um, a number of people: Dick Peterson, Dave Culley. Right.
4: Dick Peterson and Dave Culley were Michael Frankie's number two and three in command at the Department of Corrections, the two men who claimed they did a meticulous search of the dome building the night his body was found.
8: So you have that branch, and that was a viable branch to investigate. And there were certainly things about any and all of that branch, including Scott McAllister and some of his behavior and some of the things you would hear from different witnesses. And that would lead you to say, "Okay, this is at least worth investigating and putting to bed and making sure that we've closed this chapter.
4: Here's Phil Stamford's take. Uh, Yeah, for me, the big
11: question is why... Frank Gable's defense didn't jump all over Linda Parker's statement once they got it, and they had it. It's just like their failure to get Natividad and Krauss into the trial. It could have made all the difference in the trial uh, to get that sort of information in.
4: But also, the botched suicide is a missing piece of a puzzle that ties in some other elements that we already know.
11: Yeah, the the, uh, McAllister's very puzzling statement here, Um, what's so important about it, is that he says they fucked up it, it was supposed to look like a suicide well what is he talking about it seems to dovetail with other information we have from the two other department of corrections employees who were also on the outs with frankie dick peterson who is the deputy director called kevin the morning of the murder and said your brother's been shot well he wasn't shot he was he was stabbed of course and then Cawley, uh, Dave Cawley, the another assistant director who was with Peterson that night to uh, supposedly search the building and said he was afraid to go into Frankie's office because he'd find him dead. Where did McAllister come up with the idea that it was supposed to look like a suicide? That would be a very interesting question for the investigators to have asked him. But of course, they never even interviewed him.
4: Do you think it's because it would have hit too close to home?
11: It's certainly what it looks like.
4: But even as many in the press were choosing to dismiss the possibility of corruption and people like McAllister as players in Frankie's murder, as conspiracy theory, Phil Stanford refused to and was writing incessantly about it. That didn't sit well with the politically loyal factions at the paper he was working for at the time, The Oregonian.
11: Oh yeah. Um, Got into it uh, with um, the newspaper I was working for at the time. Uh, They attacked me in print while I was still employed there. <laughs> After the verdict, it was uh, an unusual experience, let's say. Over the years, I mean, every time we'd bring it up again and, and, and take another run at them, uh, they would come back. The Oregonian had committed themselves to defending the state's case, which was really defending the notion, as, as I see it, that things like this couldn't happen in Oregon.
4: And Phil believes it was easier for the Oregonian to attack him than accept the possibility that Michael Frankie could have been killed by corrupt officials and that an innocent man could have been found guilty of that murder by a corrupt system.
11: It was very important to them, whether they understood their, their unconscious motivation or not, and I think a lot of it was unconscious, to maintain what someone described to me once as presumption of regularity, you know, without which life can become a little bit threatening. If you think for a minute that you can't trust the people who are responsible for your health and safety, then things are scary. If you think, start thinking that they are lying to you and that they're corrupt, that's, that's frightening stuff.
4: And it's not that Phil was championing Gable's innocence from the start. But he did feel his guilt was certainly in question and that it was the job of journalism to ask questions.
11: Most people, uh, you know, for, I think, very good reasons, uh, don't want to entertain those beliefs. Unfortunately, people in the news business need to entertain those possibilities anyway. And that's where I think the Oregonian, specifically, uh, particularly, Uh, went so far astray. I was raising questions because I certainly didn't know the answers at the beginning. It was years before I uh, knew enough about the case to, to be able to say definitively that this guy is not guilty of anything. You made up the charges against him.
8: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling,
4: Bill found himself increasingly at odds with the Oregonian and his co-workers there, to the point he eventually had no choice but to leave.
11: I'm sure the the Frankie case figured into everything that happened, but basically it was just a new editor coming in who decided that I did not have the proper respect for power and prestige, and I'm, I'm sure she's right. So as soon as she got there, she started pushing me out, and, and I finally had enough, and I quit.
2: During
4: his seven years at The Oregonian, in addition to many successes like his series on The Happy Face Killer, Stanford devoted 84 columns to Frankie's murder and mentioned it in 17 others, totaling nearly 70,000 words. He wrote his last column for The Oregonian on April 1st, 1994, saying he'd run out of things to say. And he took one last parting shot at his editors by mentioning Frankie. Quote, a lot of people think I'm nuts on the subject, I don't, unquote. He left the paper demoralized and reflective on the path that had brought him to this point. This wasn't the first time you had walked away from a job or found yourself without one.
11: <laughs> no. As a matter of fact, if, if I was there for seven years, which I think you added up, uh, that's probably the longest I've held a job uh, in my life.
4: But yeah, I dropped out of school You didn't just drop out of college. You dropped out of Dartmouth.
11: (laughs) Yeah, um, and I I went surfing in Hawaii for a couple years. Tried school again. Didn't like it any better than the first time.
4: And then Phil created his own unique education, one oddly well-suited to an eventual career exposing corruption.
11: Joined the Army. When I got out of the Army, I started writing for magazines. I was in Washington, D.C., wrote for, well, the Washingtonian magazine, Washington Post magazine, Columbia Journalism Review, a couple, three pieces for the New York Times magazine. I, I had worked as a, an aide for a, a congressman on the Armed Services Committee, so I'd become sort of a half assed expert on military matters. I, I wrote a couple pieces on nuclear strategy and, and weapons technology worked as an editor for a political magazine in San Francisco, and then as a columnist for them, and then I dropped out. I, I don't know what exactly I was thinking at the time. I, I it was after an upsetting divorce. That might have had something to do with it. I was looking for something else, and I found it uh, in Miami. I ended up working as a private investigator for a detective agency called Intercept, which I soon discovered was, among other things, a front for. CIA drug running operation. (laughs) That's sort of where I got my education of how it really worked. Before it was all over, the guy we were working for got killed. And I ended up back in Washington, D.C., looking for jobs that were no longer available because I'd really gotten off the ladder. And turns out the only place my (laughs) my my reputation hadn't caught up with me was Oregon, I guess. And so I got a job with the Oregonian as a reporter. And after about six months, they made me a columnist.
4: And now Phil was no longer one. Meanwhile, Frank Gable was still sitting in prison and he remained there even after his 2001 post-conviction trial, which raised questions regarding his defense attorney, Bob Abel.
11: One of the big issues in the post-conviction trial was whether Abel had incapacitated himself by (laughs) drinking too much at the time. And the judge, would simply not allow any evidence of that.
4: At this point, Phil was working again as a private detective and writing books on the history of corruption in Oregon. But he never stopped digging into the Frankie murder or Gable's trial.
11: After about 10 years, I got a complete collection of all the records on the case. I got them from Tom McCallum, the Chief investigator for the defense, and he'd had all these boxes he was lugging around, 30 bankers' boxes, and they were in a boathouse out on the river someplace. He didn't want them anymore. He said, Do You want them? Yeah. So I, I, I took them and I read them. I read them twice, and it was clear to me that uh, they didn't have a case. They had nothing on him, nothing. It was all made up.
4: He also had proof, now in the form of official documents. Kevin Frankie was telling the truth the entire time. He had voiced concerns about corruption, and the records reveal the official denial of that was more than just an oversight.
11: But what I also got, you know, from reading these documents was finally an understanding of how they had no case against Gable. Nothing. Nothing. There wasn't something that we didn't understand. There wasn't something they were holding back. They didn't have a case. Gable was innocent.
4: So it gave you renewed purpose.
11: Yeah. Yeah. It got me going again. It had seemed so impossible before. Everything seemed to be against me and Kevin. And here was proof that they'd been lying about something that was central to their case. This whole case, uh, they have revealed themselves time and time again by the lies that they've told.
4: Now, armed with evidence that confirmed his suspicions about the Frankie investigation, Bill was ready to tackle it again.
11: At the time, I was working at the Tribune and started writing about the case again. I did a series on the case. We had more documents, including, of course, the officer's notebooks to back up what we were saying.
4: Then, in the summer of 2004, Frank Gable made a remarkable request. He told his attorneys to turn over all the evidence to the brother of the man he was convicted of killing. Kevin Frankie received boxes of evidence, police reports, and defense investigator interviews,
11: yeah, and after Kevin got his boxes, as we would find out, there were some missing pieces that I didn't find in mine.
4: By now, Phil's articles in the Tribune had sparked renewed interest into Michael Frankie's murder, and The Willamette Week ran an article titled, The Murder That Would Not Die. The tagline? Columnist Phil Stanford is obsessed with a decade-old conspiracy theory. What if he's right?
11: The author Nick Budnick did a, a really pretty good story on the case. And for the first time, at least in in the Portland media, gave uh, some sort of voice to the same questions that I'd been raising. And so he ended his column saying, uh, quoting me saying, well, if I were still at the Oregonian, I knew I wouldn't be writing about
4: this. And the Oregonian didn't take too kindly.
11: They had obviously been drawn into a position where they were defending the official version of the case.
4: And you were calling them on it.
11: Yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure that's the way they saw it, yeah.
4: And then Kevin unearthed the sworn statement by Linda Parker. Now the press knew that her statement was secured five months before Frank Gable's trial and was never investigated by the police or used in Gable's defense. It sparked another round of coverage. Here's television reporter Eric Mason.
3: There was this feeling
0: of um, vindication that all of our suspicions really was was based in something. Linda had a piece of the puzzle, which included overhearing that the hit on Michael Frankie was supposed to look a certain way and they had botched the job. I remember her being frightened. I remember thinking, this is a woman who really doesn't want to be interviewed and is reluctant, giving away the details, thinking to herself perhaps she's doing the right thing, but that she doesn't want to risk her safety to do it.
4: So she was afraid of Scott McAllister?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
4: The Frankie murder was making headlines again and placing scrutiny on a newspaper consistently on board with the state's version of Frankie's killing, the Oregonian.
11: They attacked back, and boy did they ever... And, and I hadn't attacked any of the writers personally. Never did, never... They came back and they, uh, with what they uh, billed as an exhaustive, be-all, end-all investi- reinvestigation of the case.
4: We'll revisit that article later. But let's just say in light of what we now know, it's been proven a pretty large misstep for the Oregonian. Jim Redden was working with Phil at the Tribune at the time. Two reporters at the Oregonian publish what they claim to be the most extensive investigation mm-hmm. into the Michael Frankie murder. And they come to the conclusion that there's one person responsible and he's in prison already. Mm-hmm. Frank Gable. No question. Then you respond to it.
6: Right. <laughs> Me and Phil together, really. It, w- it wasn't just that they were saying he you know, he did it, he's the only person that did it. They're also repeating once again that there just wasn't the corruption to justify looking at other things and we just knew that was that was wrong
4: but according to Phil Stanford that Oregonian article wasn't hard-hitting journalism it was hitting below the belt
11: it was actually just a regurgitation of the the state's case but what what made it particularly odious at the time and today, you know, uh, almost 15 years later, was that they attacked me and Kevin personally. I'm in the business, I write a column, they they can attack me, but they made Kevin out as someone who was so damaged by grief that he was fantasizing all these conspiracies. And, and as I pointed out at the time in my column, I said, this is breaking new grounds in journalism, attacking a family member of a murder victim for raising questions about his brother's murder. And it is still one of the most despicable bits of journalism I have ever seen. And and someday, they will have to answer for it, or it will be a curse they live with for the rest of their corporate existence.
4: On the next Murder in Oregon, a shocking scandal involving the former governor
7: and how old was she? She said she was 13 and she was very clear about that.
4: And the troubling way it's handled by Phil's former paper, The Oregonian.
7: It had been depicted in the Oregonian as an affair when it was rape of a child.
4: Has possible ties to Neil Goldschmidt's attitude towards Mike Frankie's murder investigation.
11: That wanted to use him, or to put it another way, blackmail him with this information.
3: Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin with music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon. The station behind the podcast, Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio.